From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Throughout the pandemic, there's been a vocal group of journalists who are adamant that the risk of COVID-19 is being overblown. But what drives this kind of thinking? And is it changing anyone's mind? Today, writer for the Saturday paper, Richard Cook, on the COVID contrarians and what they tell us about the state of the Australian media landscape. Richard, you wrote about COVID contrarianism in the Saturday paper. Can you tell me exactly what you mean by that term? Well, I think that that everybody now uh, who has any contact with the media has encountered some COVID contrarianism. But I've heard that 99.5% of cases worldwide are very mild and more people die... This is the view that COVID is no big deal. It's just like a very bad flu. The real harm is caused by mass hysteria. Testing for antibodies in people who've recovered could tell us something reassuring about whether we really are facing imminent death from this virus if ever we leave our homes, like that ABC hysterics suggested. This is a position that some people dug for themselves very early on in the pandemic. I think historians in the future are going to look back are completely shocked at what we've done. I mean, it's, it's clearer and clearer every week. I mean, it's verging on farcical in my view, basically. How you would think that they would change after a million people had died, but they've become even more deeply entrenched. And is there something that unites these perspectives? Is it uniquely Australian or, or does it go beyond that? Well, this is something which is not just happening in Australia. It seems to be especially virulent in Australia, perhaps just because we have quite a conservative press. Um, but these are people usually uh, on the conservative side of politics, though not always, whose primary way of looking at the world is economic and also with a quite select understanding of rights. They're generally not interested in human rights, but they are interested in the rights of particular people and particular classes to do as they please. And the pandemic causes big problems for both of those things. And this tension between economic and humanitarian concerns, it's its evident in some of the calls that there have been for the elderly to be sacrificed. What would they be sacrificed for? Well, the, the rationale here, as far as I understand it, is that these people have already lived a full life, that there is an economic burden being borne by the rest of society in keeping them alive, that that economic burden is unfair and that these people would willingly curtail the rest of their days so that their children can live a prosperous and, uh, and free life. Obviously, that is indicative of the crudity of the trade-offs as they're understood by COVID contrarians. You don't get to make these kind of neat choices in the real world. It is not just a trolley problem where you pull a lever. It is a set of very complicated dynamic trade-offs with not very many good options 
So you're usually not sacrificing the person who is ready. You're sacrificing people who are not, and there's a whole lot of other unintended consequences as well. Mm. So it, it goes to this idea that the the cure for COVID is worse than the disease itself, which is to say uh, it's the claim that, that lockdowns cause more harm than, than the virus does. And you, you're saying that, that that argument is shallow, essentially. Yeah. I mean, obviously lockdowns cause some harms. We're, we're already finding out what some of them are. There are already elements of the lockdowns which are probably unnecessary, which probably are going to turn out to have limited scientific bases. Reasonable people can disagree around what has to be negotiated and and how we do this accounting. There does have to be some sort of accountancy for what we value. But these are people who have decided that the value to be placed on, you know, very large numbers of mostly older people elsewhere is pretty much zero. Mm. And these ideas aren't confined to one publication. We've seen them across many in Australia. So what do you think it reveals about the Australian media landscape more broadly? Well, I mean, the Australian media landscape has shifted very dramatically to the right. Anti-democratic, authoritarian, unscientific, unfair and unreasonable. It's in fact far more right-wing than the population is, especially on questions like this. I can't think of a more egregious crime to impose upon your people than a leader who misleads his or her subjects during a time of deadly crisis. And you only have to see the kitchen sink or sinks currently being flung at Daniel Andrews. Go, Daniel Andrews, and go tonight, for God's sake. To know that this is a media class that is out of step with what voters are thinking now. It is the judgment of Dan Andrews that is so flawed and so rotten that it is corrupting the entire system, the police, the public service beneath him. It is his judgment... It's not just the Australian, it's the tabloids, it's the interstate tabloids. You know, it's weird to see the Daily Telegraph in Sydney or the Courier Mail in Queensland fixating on the Victorian Premier to the extent that they have. But this is a a full court press scenario. And at the end of it, it's now been going for weeks, Daniel Andrews is still standing. His poll numbers have not shifted very much. I think part of the severity of this campaign springs from the fact that the media's influence is diminishing and they know that and it is difficult now even to make a single politician resign. Um, that, that's evidenced by the fact that they're trying so hard to so little effect. We'll be back in a moment. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. 
Richard, you have said that it's mainly conservatives who are making these arguments against lockdowns. How does that fit in with their broader political framework? Yeah, um, it, it is mainly conservatives and, and it's mainly conservative publications. You know, in the UK, uh, this has been matched by um, The Times, um, by The Daily Telegraph. It's, of course, been matched by Fox News in the United States. Cases are That's down, hospitalizations are down, deaths are down. So, so the people have been trying to panic the country for six months. They tend to place a great emphasis on the economy, not, not just as something of importance, um, but as a kind of meaning machine. The great news here is that businesses are reopening and the economy is moving forward at a rapid clip, probably better than folks thought. Um, you know, they don't really believe in externalities in the, in the classic sense of, of economics. So when a, a problem like this comes along that markets can't solve, they just want to pretend that the problem is not there or not as severe as it obviously is. We've performed 17 million more tests than our counterparts in Western Europe. We have roughly the same number of deaths. Our economy, though, is much stronger. And investors have more confidence in our outlook going forward. These figures clearly show that... I mean, this is a, a similar process to what we're seeing with climate change because it involves government intervention as a preventative measure, and because that government intervention is anathema to conservatives, they are at an impasse. And do you think it works in terms of actually changing public opinion? Yeah, absolutely. It also, it, it doesn't have to change public opinion. Um, it can just uh, waste the public's time, as it were. I mean, other countries and other places are talking about the pandemic as a way to rethink about society. You know, there, there are countries in Europe which are considering it as the beginning of an experiment in universal basic income, for example. What is the rhetoric that we get here? It's largely the same as it always is about a down payment on future austerity. It partly works on public opinion by limiting the threshold of possibilities available in a situation like this. And this is all coming at a time when the the media sector is faltering on multiple fronts. So can you talk to me a bit about that and also where you think we go from here in the media industry? Well, if, if I start talking about that, I might not stop. Um, when you start to criticise the standards of the media generally and the media in Australia in particular, it sometimes feels like pulling at the end of an endless piece of thread. Um, it is very difficult to do the kind of work that creates genuine accountability now. It often goes unrewarded financially and in terms of an audience. And so what instead happens, especially when there's a, a sort of faux emphasis on balance and fairness, is that you end up doing horse race-style reporting where everything is a dialectic, everything is a high school debate, um, where you have two sides and the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, that is something I didn't think that we would see with a killer virus, but, you know, the rules of both ciderism are stringent enough that the virus has to have its advocates. The kind of long, thankless work 
um, is still being done. But it's natural that when budgets are tight and when an audience will flock to clickbait more rapidly, it's natural that resources will head in that direction and and that's what we're seeing. Mm. And do you, I guess, see this as a bad sign in terms of our ability as a society to discuss complex issues beyond the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've always... Society struggles with complex topics. Um, The media struggles with complex topics. If you speak to um, anyone who works in a complex field, especially science, um, and you speak to them about the way that the media reports on stories, they have been very critical of that for a very long time. You know, the... The way that health is reported generally, you know, even pre-pandemic, tends to be in terms of miracle cures. You know, there, there aren't really very many miracle cures. Some people say there are no miracle cures. Or X gives you cancer. You know, that is not how lifestyle epidemiology works. It's not how genetics works, really. Um, but these sort of rational astrologies are how we generally and the media makes sense of the world. They are partly demand-driven. Richard, in your piece, you call the media an inessential class and you say that maybe it's time that, that it died off. And I wanted to know, is, is that a joke or is that something that you really think? I don't think that it is a joke. I think that there is strong evidence now that these kind of gee whiz, slapdash, contrarian opinion pieces, even as they're increasingly being ignored, have done damage. We are at the end of a quarter century period where all of the counterfactuals turn out to be wrong and the people producing those counterfactuals on war, on climate change and now on pandemics are all still there. There's been no process of accountability whatsoever. At least in the US, they've changed the faces. We don't even have that. It is all the same people who are responsible, partly responsible for all those same mistakes and we are still stuck listening to them and we're listening to them trying to encourage us to make another set of very severe mistakes. And I think listening to them is a mistake. Richard, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, guys. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, US presidential candidates Joe Biden and Donald Trump faced off in the first election debate yesterday. As we welcome the Republican nominee, President Trump, and the Democratic nominee, Vice President Biden. Analysts describe the head-to-head matchup as a chaotic and at times incoherent event. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you answer that because question? the question you is the question is the question. Will you shut up, man? Listen, who is on your list, Joe? 
The moderator, Chris Wallace, was criticised for failing to control the debate stage as the president continually spoke over him and Joe Biden. It's a popular aspect of Obamacare. I got rid of it. I'd like and to, we will protect Mr. people president, with I'm the moderator of this debate and I would like you to let me ask my question. Biden attacked Trump over decisions he'd made as president, including his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. When he was presented with that number, he said it is what it is. Well, it is what it is because you are who you are. That's why it is. The president has no plan. He hasn't laid out any... Trump fired back using a range of personal attacks to criticise Biden's record as a lawmaker. Don't ever use the word smart with me. Don't ever use that word. Oh, give me a break. Because you know what? There's nothing smart about you, Joe. 47 years, you've done nothing. Let's have this debate. And if you would have had... Let me just tell you something. The president also refused to directly condemn white supremacy. Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to I'm Ruby Jones. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.